gospel lesson today is found in John chapter 15. We're reading the verse, the first 17 verses. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love." If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word today and we give thanks. We give thanks that there is light in darkness. We give thanks that there is truth amongst all of our error, that you have spoken and you have given us your word. And now we ask that by your spirit we may abide in that word. Let us dwell upon it richly. And will you lead and guide us into all truth today? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers shocked the sporting world by announcing their plans to launch a new streaming service next fall that will combine all of their sports broadcasting rights. Now, for some of you, that may mean nothing. For those who are interested in watching sporting events, it means a great deal. The service does not yet have a name, nor does the service have a price, but it will be ready to launch in the fall, and they will be ready to take your money at that point. They were also very quick to clarify that the service will not be available within the traditional cable television bundles. You may remember something like this happened a few weeks ago before the Jaguars' season uh, unnecessarily ended early. 
but is a bombshell because these media giants, ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers, have purchased many broadcasting rights, and so it's going to change everything about viewing and watching, particularly the National Football League. It raises this one simple question for the consumer, especially for the non-tech-savvy consumer. How do I watch the game? (laughs) What channel is it going to be on? What device do I need to be using? How do I get access to the content I want? How many subscriptions and bundles do I need to purchase? What channels can be bundled with what channels and which ones belong to who? And then maybe worst of all is which game is going to belong to which broadcasting company? In a quickly changing marketplace, it's a maze. And there is absolutely no clear way forward. And such a maze is never helpful. And that's especially true when it comes to discussions about our religious beliefs. But it was just such a maze, just such a maze that the Protestant reformers encountered in medieval Catholicism. Elaborate systems of prayers to saints on particular days that were to be said. The purchasing of masses for the dead. Pilgrimages to various relics. The mumbling of prayers in an unknown language. This was the maze that ordinary Christians were to walk through in order to commune with God and to gain access to him. A common critique that the Protestant reformers made that was that Jesus had been buried beneath all the ceremonies, that the elaborate maze of devotional practice had actually obscured him rather than magnifying him, and the grace of God was lost. And so the pressing question, the one pressing question during the Reformation, then and there, and the pressing question that we must continue to ask here and now, that still belongs to the Reformed Church, is how do we commune with God? And how do we have fellowship with him? In John 15, Jesus supplies a direct and clear answer. It's not obscure. It's not buried beneath a pile of ceremonies. In verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. It's provocative, it's powerful, it's a metaphor, a statement in which Jesus claims that he is the way into the life of God, that we have communion with God only in and through him. And so he commands us, because he's this way into communing with God, he commands us repeatedly to abide in him or to abide in his love. In John 15. And then he moves on to provide this detailed teaching of what it means for us to abide in God's love. And in a very difficult passage that can somewhat feel like a maze in that it winds around these different themes, we're going to see four things here about what it means and what it looks like for us to abide in God's love. Follow with me in verse 2. First, here we'll see that we abide by acknowledging his nurture. 
Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. After explaining that he is the true vine, he also relays to us that there is a vine dresser. And he's referring to his father. He is the vine dresser, or perhaps in more modern language, he's the gardener. And the role of the gardener is to keep and to tend the vines. And the gardener's goal there is not just that they be good looking, but that they be pruned back so that they be most fruitful and productive. Jesus explains that we are clean in verse 3. But he is also affirming here in verse 2 that we all need the continued work of pruning. That God must actively be at work in us in order that we bear fruit. And you'll see here that this pruning process is not negotiable. It's not something that we get to opt into. But rather it's something that is assigned. Jesus just assumes it. The fruitful branch, Jesus says, will be pruned. It will be cut back. Several years ago, I had to prune my back hedge. And I discussed it with the landscaper, and he recommended a certain height and what that would mean. And I said, I trust you completely, Les, to prune the back hedge. When I got home, I was shocked and horrified. I'd never seen my neighbor's houses before. But there they were, you know. Very prominently, there they were in front of me, clearly displayed. And so I went back and asked my landscaper, Les, what happened? He said, well, I pruned them back, and in a few short months, your bushes will be healthier and larger and more full. And friends, he knew what he was doing. He's a master landscaper. He understands his business and his trade, and this is God in the same way. And sometimes the pruning is ugly. Sometimes it's painful. And we don't tend to view the pruning process in the Christian life in a positive way. Our tendency is to go one of three ways with this. And the first is that some of us want to just ignore the pruning work of God. And Jesus does issue a warning here for those who would want to ignore this pruning work. And what he explains is that we demonstrate that we're not really a part of the vine. At this point, two times in verse 2 and in verse 6, Jesus says that those branches will be removed that do not bear fruit. And so people ask the question, does this mean that salvation is lost? And just when we look particularly at John's gospel and his first epistle, he gives some of the clearest answers to that question that salvation is not lost here, but rather it's demonstrated that it was never possessed or owned, that this is like the case of the rocky soil and the thorns in Luke 8, that they never uh, grew to maturity. There's an ultimate disinterest in spiritual things, and John explains it this way in chapter 2 of his epistle, that they went out from us Because they were not of us. And friends, the branch that doesn't bear fruit was ultimately interested somewhat in Jesus. But then the pruning process and the fruit bearing, they simply grow disinterested and move away. And so some do just 
ignore the pruning work of God and demonstrate that they were never really interested in Jesus. Now others deflect when God is actively at work in their lives. This is frequent particularly when people suffer. Rather than looking internally and asking ourselves hard questions as to how we're responding to our situations and what is God at work and doing in our lives, what we're tempted to do, particularly when we're suffering and we're facing difficulty, is that we project outward. We look at the injustice of our circumstances. We focus on the wrongs of others. We think of everything else that we can think of beyond the internal and what's happening here. We simply deflect, refusing to look at what God's doing. And then still others despair under the pruning work of God, becoming weary and discouraged by the weight of their own sin. That is that we feel the shears and we feel the cutting and we simply grow tired, tired of ourselves because we know the weight of our own sin. We fear that maybe God doesn't really love us. But there's something important to appreciate here. That the pruning is not designed to discourage. The pruning is not designed to lead us to despair. That the pruning is promised to us. And it's the tender care of a gardener, of a vine dresser, who wants to increase the bounty and the fruit. He declares that we're already clean. And now he's at the work of pruning to increase our fruitfulness. The father trims and prunes for that further fruitfulness. And friends, it's ours to accept that care. And to believe that even when it feels like a bruise and when the pruning feels severe, that it's a tender care designed for our good. This is what Jesus says it means to abide in God's love. It is to receive the care of the vine dresser. But second, in verse 3, we also see that we abide by accepting our status. As mentioned, Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This is actually a reference to something that came up earlier in this long sermon that Jesus issues to the disciples. And this was mentioned in chapter 13 as Jesus also gives the object, the illustration of washing the disciples' feet. But there in verse 10... Jesus washes the disciples' feet and tells them that they are already clean. And by this, several weeks ago, we explored that meaning that this refers to the forgiveness of sins that is granted to the disciples upon faith in Jesus. It is our justification, our right standing with God. It is God's declaration that you are clean. And friends, that declaration, that announcement, when God pronounces you are clean, he's not negotiating with you. Nor is he observing something about you. Rather, he's making a declaration over you that because of faith in his son, you are clean. That you're righteous because of the work of another on your behalf. And what we have to do in order to abide in God's love 
is to get on board with that declaration. But there is an internal fight within us and that we grapple against this. Because with the message that you are clean, there is an implicit critique. And please understand me when I say it's devastating. It's devastating. The implication is that we are not. It's not just that we need our feet cleaned. No, Jesus says the whole body has to be washed. That we must be forgiven by God. That we're immersed in the filth. That every part of us is tainted by sin. That there is nothing left untouched. That this is how deeply our involvement in a sinful world has become. But then we hear this relieving word. This comforting word. You are already clean. And friends, that's the truth. And for us who labor long in the world and feel the weight of our sins, there's nothing better to remind ourselves of. During my college years, bookstores were still a thing. And I remember stopping at the local Christian bookstore one afternoon. And I was particularly in need of encouragement. I was feeling overwhelmed by my underwhelming holiness. My own struggles with sin and personality and the different weaknesses that I felt. And so I was perusing through the Christian bookstore. And most of it was how to do this and how to do that. And I had read several books by a man named Jerry Bridges. And I had been helped by them but also frustrated with them. And then I saw that Jerry Bridges had written a new book. And it was called Transforming Grace. And so I picked it up, I read the front cover, and he was sharing his narrative. His narrative from moving from a, a legalistic form of Christianity into a form of Christianity that would practice preaching the gospel to himself. I said, this is interesting. I took it home, it only took a few days to read, but it was absolutely revolutionizing. And what was happening was just a rehearsing of what Jesus is talking about here as he says to the disciples, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And friends, we must hear that again and again if we are to abide in the love of God. We must know that it is God who has initiated with us. It is God who has placed his love upon us. It is God the Father who sends the Son, that the Son responds to the Father in love, that the Son gives himself in love for you and for me. And knowing that then because the Son has given himself, that we are clean, forgiven, pure in the sight of God, despite the fact that we are not. And so we must accept that status Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to one another. Prize that gospel. Accept your status before God that you are clean. Abide in his love. And third, in verses 7 through 11, we see that we abide by also keeping his commands. Now many people find this puzzling. Because we've been focused upon what God does for us. What God does for us in sending the Son. And what he does to us as the vine dresser. 
who prunes us and keeps us under his care. And now Jesus, though, clearly turns in these verses to also speak of abiding in God's love by following and keeping the commandments. Now, we always must remember the proper order. Augustine captures it well. He says it's not that we keep God's commandments first and then that he loves us, but that God loves us and then we keep his commandments. That it is this reciprocal response, that there is always grace that precedes gratitude. It's the lightning and the thunder of the gospel, friends. And this is the proper order that having experienced the love of God, there will be this response of love back up to God in which we abide in our Lord Jesus and in his wisdom. Follow in verse 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But he speaks here of abiding in the words of God, the words of our Lord Jesus and his wisdom and all that he commands. And then he says that this will actually impact the way that you pray and that what you pray for will begin to align with the will of God and that we find the sanctification even of our desires and God will give us those desires. And then in verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so it's important for us to appreciate here what does Jesus mean by keeping his commandments. Well, very clearly, one of the things on his mind is this great commandment that we love one another. If you follow down into verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so we know that this is involved when Jesus talks about abiding in the love of God and following his love, that we are to love one another. Now, if you follow this into chapter 8, you would see that Jesus also mentions abiding in the word of God. That is, delighting in God's wisdom and what he has revealed, what he has made known of his will. And also in chapter 6, you would see that it's also doing the works of God, and the work of God is to believe in the one that he has sent. And so, friends, when Jesus discusses keeping his commandments... He's involving everything. It's a holistic command. It is theology and it is ethics. It is our beliefs and it's also our actions. It's what God has done for us and then our response to God. That we abide in his love by responding to all of this grace and beauty that has overflowed from Father, Son, and Spirit down to us, has been made our own despite our own undeserving. And then we seek this response of faithfulness, to love one another, to love God, to abide in his word. And then finally, in verse 16, we see that we abide also by accepting his choice. At the end of explaining that the disciples were to love one another, even as he had loved them, Jesus then argues that he has made known the will of God, that he's revealed the mystery of God to them. And then in verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, 
But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Again, it's critical for us to pay attention to the order of Jesus' words. We did not choose. We were chosen. We did not take the initiative. Jesus did. It is Jesus who determined that we would belong to him, not we who determined that we would belong to him. And friends, this magnifies in a very simple way one truth of our salvation. That our salvation from first to last is a free gift of a gracious God. It doesn't begin in us. It doesn't involve us. It's not that we persuaded him to do it. But rather a gracious God from eternity has made us his own. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And you see that he chooses us for a particular direction. He determines us for a particular life, and that is a fruit-bearing life. And that's a life, as he explains in verse 8, that would be unto his glory. And so it's here at this point that people have many questions. Well, what does all of that mean? This is involving us in this word predestination that just seems extremely nasty, Presbyterian. You're the only people who like to talk about it. Augustine, this was before Presbyterianism, was accused of focusing too much on the topic of Presbyterianism, of of, uh, predestination. (laughs) Some of his opponents claimed that he preached too much about the topic. And they then made the assertion that it was dangerous to talk about. Just dangerous to talk about this idea of God choosing. Calvin picks up on the discussion. And then he makes an argument with those who desire to shy away from the topic. Just listen to what he says. I desire only to have them generally admit that we should not investigate what the Lord has left hidden in secret. And so Calvin's saying, yeah, there are certain boxes that we just don't open. There are certain things that God hasn't revealed, and we should be shy about trying to press into them. That would go too far. And he continues. He says that we should not neglect what he has brought into the open so that we may not be convicted of excessive curiosity on the one hand, or excessive ingratitude on the other. So just as we shouldn't pry into what God has kept hidden, we should look into what he has made plain. When God has made something plain, he has given it to us so that it would be a source of gratitude. It would be a source of thanksgiving. There would be a source of life. And so what Calvin was indicating to those in his own church who did not like his teachings about predestination, he was attempting to pastorally appeal to them that consider that God has given this and he's given it for the specific purpose that he would awaken your gratitude. He's not asking you to be excessively curious. He's not even asking that you understand all of it. 
But he is asking that you affirm what he has said. You did not choose me, but I chose you. This was not your idea. In fact, it would have never been your desire. That's how sick the human heart is. But I chose you, Jesus says. I have made you my own. I have granted you a new heart that would desire, a new heart that would be inclined to believe. I have awakened you by my spirit. I have made you my own and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And friends, one of the great mysteries of abiding in God's love is enjoying this overwhelming display of God's goodness in choosing us before the foundations of the world. The ins and outs of that we will never fully understand because we know that it is despite us that everything about us was turned against him. But Jesus here brings this up because he wants us to embrace it. Because this is a never-ending fountain to drink from. It's part of that preaching the gospel to yourself. That not only were we made clean in time, but God determined us for this out of his goodness. And that is a never-ending fountain of two things. Of humility, because we don't deserve it. And of gratitude, because it's so good. You did not choose me but I chose you. And if you find yourself with questions, if you find that perplexing, that's okay. We have all been there. As I was even reading that book, Transforming Grace, I was working through these very doctrines, attempting to understand and get my mind around them that year. But friends, it's a wonderful curiosity because God has revealed it. And so entertain that curiosity. Explore the depth of God's love. It all can be very confusing, but Jesus has made it simple. He's made it simple and he's made it plain about how we are to abide in the love of God. That we are to embrace our new status. That we are to abide in accepting his choice of us. That we are to keep and follow his commandments and that we are to accept his nurture and care and pruning us. And friends, it is in this place, that is what God has determined for us. That's what he has set you apart for. And so let's abide in his love. Let's ask for his help. Father, we're simply stunned and overwhelmed as we consider the magnitude of all that our Lord Jesus says here. He has revealed to us what you have given to him. He has faithfully done that. And he brings us into the eternal love between you and the Son and the Spirit. A love that has then descended from the heavens in time. A love that has rescued us and been demonstrated in his sacrifice. A love that reaches back before even the foundations of the world. And God, we ask that you give us grace that we abide in that love. And that we bear the good fruits that you've intended. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to believe and trust in your promises. Teach us to receive your good hand, even in pruning. Be at work in us. Bear your fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.